The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. Today, we have an episode in which we are going to talk about everything that's happening right now around um, Black Lives Matter and the PR industry's response to this. Um, on today's show, we have Sabrina Lynch, who is an SVP at Taylor, and that name might seem familiar to some of you, um, because Sabrina's quotes were featured in the first article that we did on this topic. Um, in fact, her quote was our headline, um, amid protests, we're tired of words, we need to see action. And Sabrina had some pointed words for the industry, which is why I wanted to invite her on the show um, to talk a little bit about her experience as a Black professional in the PR industry. And not only that, Sabrina also brings a cross-cultural perspective. She's from the UK originally, but has lived in New York for the last decade. So welcome to the show, Sabrina. Yeah, thanks for having me. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much that we, in fact, you and I have been actually been talking for, for um, about 30 minutes already. Um, so, and, and there's so many things that, that came up in that conversation that I want to um, talk about for the show. And, but first, it's like, it, I think it'd be really helpful to give people a little bit of background, your, how, your career trajectory, both in the UK as well as in the US um, in the PR industry. Sure. So I, I went to university to study law. I actually have a, a law degree, well, law with French. And while, do, while I was studying, I realized that my extracurricular activities were very much in the, the communication side. I was news editor of our university newspaper, I was news editor of our radio station. And during my second year um, at law, in law school, I decided to have, go for an internship about marketing PR, you know, see what it was all about. I got an internship. Uh, at Edelman, which was Jackie Cooper at the time. And after I finished that, after four months, I decided to explore that further after I, I received my law degree. And I'm still here. <laughs> it's worked out all right for me so far. I, so, I'm, curious, I'm curious why why you decided to come to New York. So I came to New York through an agency I was working with. The, I was working on the global team. And uh, one of the brands uh, needed the global team to be based in New York. It was just better for the operational side um, and also the day-to-day -day runnings. So I, I, that's how I moved um, to New York. And uh, it, was, it still is, continues to be a wonderful experience, not just practicing marketing to Americas, both North and, and South, but also as a global practitioner as well. I'm still providing counsel to global brands in the Asia, Australasia, EMEA, and Africa market. And so, you know, I, I'm curious, so I've been talking to a lot of industry leaders over the past week or so, and many are saying they are in listening mode and they want to do better and they want to, they want to listen to, to the experience of, of, of black professionals in our industry around how they can do better. So I, I want to give I want to give those leaders an every opportunity to to hear what the black experience in the parent industry has been like. So Sabrina, if you don't mind, if you can tell us a little bit about what your experience has been like. Yes, my my experiences um, have been varied, and they've been upset that I've had to sit on and to live with, all in the name of furthering the business, meaning that when I have shared my grievances or I have shared concerns over a lack of representation or a lack of action, 
I call it corporate gaslighting to a certain degree, where you are retold brand values that are on their website and what you live for and you get the documents about this is what our agency or our brand stands for, but is it's not reflected in your actions at all. And then to a certain degree, you become institutionalized from that. That becomes your truth because you've heard no so many times because you've been brushed off so many times. It's more of an exhausting experience to speak up when you hear it based on your previous history of people ignoring your voice. Mm -hmm. To your point that you were talking about earlier though, when PR in, um, agencies or advertising creative industries are saying now we are listening, the bigger question for me is, well, were you listening before and is this, has this been a failure to act on it? Because I believe that there are employees in your workforce that have brought to light external factors, which we're experiencing now, that have not only impacted their work, but impacted how they believe brands should be behaving and being responsible for. Mm -hmm. The atrocities against ethnic minorities, African-Americans, is not new. I think we just have to be really clear on that. Mm -hmm. However, it's an experience that has been previously categorized as an inconvenience to the everyday life of the privileged customer. My experience has been about catering to the privileged customer. Let me define the privileged customer, um, what that means is... The privileged customer is someone who does not go through the same experiences, obstacles, or issues that multicultural communities um, face every day. And when they are multicultural communities are targeted, it's targeted through the output of the culture, as I've explained before, which is the music, which is the fashion, is the art. You get the fun. Uh, the fun rainbows Disneyland experience of the culture, but you omit the hardship behind it. Mm -hmm. And when they are again are catered to, it's given the label of urban because it's safe and it's sanitized and it doesn't actually hold you accountable from appropriating that said culture either. So corporate brands and agencies to a certain degree have been the architects of a, a bubble of truth that was specifically designed for this privileged customer. And what we are seeing right now is the blinkers. They've had to take their blinkers and blinders off because you were listening, but perhaps you weren't acting. And now you actually have to raise your hands to help. So there's, there's, there's a few follow-up questions I have, and one of them I want to address directly is, is your view on multicultural practices? Because I've heard, um, over the years, I've heard, you know, why, why they exist and what connect, what, you know, what comes of them. I mean, that's because to your point, um, the, the, the mainstream consumer often is default for, for the white consumer. And the only way to actually pay attention to some other groups is by having a separate practice. But on the flip side of it, um, you know, you you don't incorporate the needs of, of, of folks outside of the, the majority or not even, I mean, in some markets might, is not even the majority, but outside of the white consumer into into the overall plan and also for um, for people of color within an organization, they feel like they often get sidetracked and are often kind of um, told to, 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 you know, become members of the multicultural um, division instead of being able to have a broader career. So I'm curious what your perspective has been on the multicultural segments and do you think that that should exist still or do you think that they sh agencies should or even brands should find ways to, to integrate that with sort of the mainstream, the, you know, the quote mainstream um, yeah. practices? 
So I would say, again, the bigger question is in 2020, why do they still need to exist? Mm -hmm. It's marketing and sales segregation. A customer is a customer. And because the experience of multicultural customer is categorized as one dimensional, as I was saying before, about the music, a particular product, a particular lifestyle, it seems to me that that's created this divide between them and us. You can talk to them like this, but you talk to us in a particular way. So the agencies are needed at the moment because they are filling and bridging a gap that other agencies, other clients are not fulfilling. Now, I'll bring it back a little bit on a personal note, is my expertise is my expertise. It's my job to know not only what African-American communities, and again, a very different levels of, of intricate demographics even within that, that's my job to know what their behaviors like, their audiences are like, what's their insight, what the trends, what behavior. Just as much as it's my business to know what a 14-year-old boy in middle of America is into, just as much as it is to me knowing what audiences in India, um, and again, India and its wide spectrum, like both North, north and South, what's going on in, north, um, in, in the career in, in Australia, etc. That's my job. And if there is a lack of effort or motivation to know that audience, then the agencies that we see that are catering to multicultural audiences will never be assimilated because they are a need. And actually more so, it's a glaring, it's a glaring indication of where we still are in the marketing and PR world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the other observations I've made this time around, which is different than, than the past is, um, a lot of agencies have come outright and said that this is about, about Black Lives Matter. And it's not a vaguer, um, you know, let's stand up to hate or, you know, something about kind of, kind of a broader DNI um, mm-hmm. message, you know, feel good message. It's, it's, it's saying outright, this is about the Black community, Black Lives Matter. Um, do, you, do you think that is significant, that, that the way that agencies are talking about it has changed? I, I believe the movement is significant and when i say the movement i'm not talking oh sabrina i lost the movement right now am i back yep you're back Mm -hmm. yeah okay i believe the movement is is significant do i believe that pr agency let me not keep saying pr creative agencies advertising pr marketing and brands um about them listening I'm still on the fence about the motivation. Are you motivated because you were listening to your employees, listening to your customers talk about it, and you never acted on it, which is why it's created a nervousness and you're showing solidarity? Or are you motivated by actually acknowledging the history of how we have not been seen and been visible in your executive leaders, um, leaderboards, in your, not executive leaderboards, in your executive boards, Mm -hmm. in your marketing, in your advertising, and you want to drive the movement forward. Mm -hmm. See, like we, we are living in an era where businesses are expected to add far more substance to their commitments to social good and to communities in general. So if you profess that black lives matter, yet your marketing and advertising campaigns, they are missing people of color, 
Your board members are predominantly white. You have never stood alongside communities on the front lines. You need to validate why you are showing up now and how you want to show up. Because a black square on Instagram does not help the movement. A commitment to say, we are going to help um, move anti-racism anti movement forward and change that mindset, the words don't help. What exactly are you going to do? So writing a check to donate absolutely is a start, but it doesn't absolve you of contributing to tangible help that will help change the issues at large. So I, I want to read a quote that you had in, um, in our piece from, from um, or the first piece that we did on, on the subject. Um, sending, a, sending a note to employees showing empathy is not enough. Telling your employees to take PTO for their mental well-being is not enough. Organizing internal discussions where minority groups talk about their experience as a listening exercise is not enough. Sending a newsletter to your associates with a list of resources and URL links is not enough. And sending a check to a charity fund is not enough. We are tired of boards. We need to take action. So all of the things there are all things that, of course, you know, I've seen happen over the last few weeks. You know, I've had these notes of empathy forwarded to me from CEOs. Um, I've had, you know, we've all seen the agencies that have shut down because they want people, you know, for a day because they want people to reflect on what's happening. Um, I've heard about so many virtual town halls. So I, I'm curious, you know, what, what do you want to see beyond the things that, that you listed here? Uh, I want to see longevity. I'm, and I, I'm not going to downplay the actions that agencies have taken in terms of shutting down their businesses, having town halls, having their discussions, but that's in reaction to an atrocity that's happened right now. Mm -hmm. Because there are thousands of atrocities that happened and brutality shows up in different forms and different shapes. What we are seeing is the physical side of brutality, but nobody talks about or addresses the emotional brutality of going into work facing microaggressions every single day. Maybe you speak up about one, then it's brushed off potentially, and then you go back. That in itself is also diminishing to the mindset of people of colors, um, people of colors confidence within themselves. So I want to see longevity. What's your action plan? Mm -hmm. Not only just for the end of the year, but into 2025 until 2030. What physical impact, workshops, changes do you want to face? And more importantly for me, ask for forgiveness. You don't whitewash maybe errors that you have made mm -hmm. in contributing to microaggressions, contributing to you may, may not be intentional racism, but you have to acknowledge them. Mm -hmm. Then acknowledge the past mistake, ask for forgiveness, acknowledge the past mistakes, ask to learn. Beyond the town halls, how else are you learning? What other resources are you putting together? Instead of actually bringing, sending out links and here's third parties that you can speak to, the burden's not on your employees, the burden is on you to provide. And it goes right back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, how are you continually making your work environment a safe place? And also, how are you given permission for that workforce to also push back against what they see as racist um, strategies and racist mindsets on work for clients? Mm -hmm. Because you have to also feel empowered to push back to, to an extent when right. you s see something within the gut. What we are living in right now 
there is no perfection of words to use against racism. Mm -hmm. It's gut. It, words and actions come from the heart, right. not from the hierarchy of, of activities or words or statements being approved down a chain. Act to rectify the errors of your past. I think that's really, really powerful, you know, acknowledging, acknowledging the past mistakes, right? Um, you know, I want to ask you a question about the term person of color versus, versus speaking specifically about the black community right now. Um, you know, one of the things I've heard is, I mean, you risk, if you make it about people of color, then, you know, you, you're sort of diluting the issue at hand. And, um, you know, and then person of color, then, then that seems to broaden and broaden. And then at some point, you know, mm -hmm are talking about diversity of thought. Um, so, you know, and I was, and the, the other thing I've, I've heard people say is, you know, if, if, we, if you can focus as a, as a workplace on making it inclusive for, for the, for black employees, it will, all others will rise, right? I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll benefit all other groups. Um, so I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, making this about people of color versus making this specifically about the black community. Well, the two go hand in hand because for me, it's like making this the, the initiatives and uh, the movement about people of, of people of color or black communities. Let's be more specific. Mm -hmm. Is a show that you are you are against anti race um, anti racism. Wait a minute. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Okay. About, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, it, it is. I'm going to start that again. Sorry, though. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that supporting black employees. Is a, is a show of solidarity against racism and fascism. It's one aspect of it. When you look at the, what the Asian American communities were facing in terms of fascism and racism, when COVID was at its peak, that same level of energy needed to be behind that. It wasn't, a, again, going back to that, that saying I was talking about, them and us. This is not a separate divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we are coming together because one, one of those communities is hurting. And when that community hurts, we all should be hurting. Mm -hmm. It's the solidarity through, unfortunately, the oppression that we are feeling right now. And I think to your point about, I mean, if, if you take the anti-racist approach, then no matter which group is targeted, there is, um, you at least, you know, have the momentum to... to to stand behind, right? To apply this. Yeah, you can't, you can't sanitize, you can't sanitize the issues. Right. You can't then again make it a corporate branding exercise mm -hmm. of, well, I know Black Lives Matters, but well, there are other communities that I need our help and people are going to attack us for not. At right. the moment, what we have seen mm -hmm. in this window of time, yep. unfortunately not the first, I really hope to God not the, uh, it will be the last, but it's, atrocities against black communities. That's what needs to be, that's what needs to happen. So I, I want to get your take on some of these um, town halls that are happening because, um, you know, I know talking about racism is not comfortable for all people of color, not, especially if you're one of a handful of people within an organization that, you know, is, is, is black or, or, or a member of another community of color. So I, I wonder if you have any suggestions on how you can make these town halls not feel like there's a spotlight on, on people. And, and, you know, and, and some, some folks would feel totally comfortable standing up and saying, hey, look, here's what I experienced. Here's what I think we need to rectify. Others may not want it to or, or feel safe um, talking about what they've experienced or even necessarily know what the path forward is. How can you make these town halls actually effective and productive? So I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first for me would be the, the bigger question of why 
aren't these spaces feeling safe? Why don't your employees feel safe? And then once you're able to address that, those town halls in future will be far more effective and productive for you. The second point about how do you make them safe is I feel it's not about, you shouldn't diminish anybody's experience. This is not, it's not a competition. Neither is there an expectation that you're looking for the most extreme version or extreme experience of what your racism and encounter is. And in addition to that, it's not just about the people who are at the center of experienced it, perhaps it's about the people who have been around it and been bystanders to it, but never known what, what course or address to take. That's another question, is if I see it, I don't know how to say it. Right. I don't know how to express it to the HR, to my boss. Mm -hmm. And if I have been told the protocols and I've done it one or two occasions and I was brushed off, then again, what permission have I been given to think that something is going to change? I know a lot of my work, um, previous um, work colleagues have been in positions where they've come to me and they've told me about times that they believed that they had allies within organizations and talked about it, but it was downgraded as um, a characteristic flaw than it was an actual racist flaw. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, I was it, telling those work colleagues and work colleagues who then become friends is you have to keep on with the fight, even though you may believe nothing's going to come of it. One day it's going to stick. Yeah. And that's the same that again, that should be shared with um, in town halls with other employees. Are you an upholder mm -hmm. where you don't tolerate it and you do speak out? Are you a bystander where you see it, but you don't say anything or you don't share because you don't know how to do it. How can you change that dynamic? Right. And are you an instigator? Mm -hmm. Because this is not, again, it's not about naming and shaming, but it's also holding up a mirror to yourself to think maybe now I'm talking, there have been instances where I've instigated uh, a situation. I, I, again, it doesn't matter about the intent or not, but I have to hold myself accountable too. Right. And town halls should be small. Mm. I think because the smaller the groups are when you're talking, the right. more, more likely I believe that people will feel more comfortable with sharing something and depending on who they're sharing with. And it's free of judgment. When you do grand town halls, for instance, everybody's looking to the leader, the person who's speaking. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to confess to errors in an open forum with people who are just your work colleagues and not work are not friends. Why would you want to do that? You can't make change. Right. Right. So it's smaller discussions that happen one on one that right. act that create the bigger change. That, that's an excellent point. Like yeah, these these should these should be smaller interactions, and and also I, I like your point about you know um, if you see it, you need to know how to address it, and and that and there and it has to be a way that, you know, if you've been burned in the past where you've, you've tried to address it and you, you said you've been brushed off or told that, you know, that wasn't the intention and you're misreading the situation, how can you change that? How can you make it so that people don't feel, to, you know, to your point about, you know, they don't feel gaslighted um, within their own organizations? Yeah, it shouldn't be an empathy exercise. That's one thing I do want to share as well. It's not we are going to get a group of people on a Zoom call 
we're all going to talk, listen to our people of color, the workforce who are pe persons of color or from different ethnic minorities, uh, not minority backgrounds. We're going to talk about their pain. We're going to feel sorry for them. And then we're going to become, yes, we're going to help them. We don't want to feel, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I need to get this right because I was just about to, ooh, ooh, fix it, Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> what we, we are not looking for is pity. We are looking for allies. Town halls should not be about drawing empathy alone from workforce. It should be drawing people's suggestions or making changes. The power is in your hands to make suggestions of, again, small gestures, grand gestures, small activities that can actually help improve your environment. So it seems like, you know, and to your point about taking actions, I mean, so it seems like there's, there's two things here, right? I mean, and it, and it sounds like the most recent, you know, you know, what's happening right now and, and the protests are prompting agencies to reflect both on their own, you know, cultures within their own organizations, you know, how they address racism within their organizations, how they create inclusive environments. But then there's also the bigger issue. And I mean, a lot of the, the resources that people are sharing, you know, the the, the donations that they're making are about addressing systematic racism, right? That That is bigger than a single organization, that's bigger than the private sector. I mean, we're seeing it at, at all ranks of society. So how can agencies go about, and I mean, this is, should also be for brands as well. I know we're talking mostly about the agency sector, because, you know, that, that's where you're coming from. But, um, you know, how can they think about this, both, you know, what's going on within their own organizations, and then, but also how they, how they participate in this bigger societal fight? Well, I'm going to take the last question first. There is so much to unpack in the bigger system, uh, the bigger fight, because we're talking about education, we're talking about economic inequality, we're talking about inequalities and in social equity and access to resources, we're talking about recruitment. So that's a lot <laughs> to unpack and to help. So again, I'm going to go back to what I was saying before is about sometimes it's, it's the smaller wins that lead to the biggest impact. So going uh, what you were, uh, um, forgive me now, I forgot what the first part of that question was. So, so it's, it's, there's, there's, there's two pieces here that I think yeah. a lot of organizations are reflecting on. One is how they be anti-racist within their own organizations mm -hmm. and then also looking at their own DNI initiatives, right? And how they are creating an inclusive and diverse workforce um, within, you know, just within their organization. And, but then also the bigger systematic issues that people are on the, in the streets protesting. Right, okay. So I'm not gonna forget the first question now. <laughs> so I would say for the second, um, there's so much to, let me begin again, sorry. There is so much to unpack in talking about how you help systematic racism, education, social inequality, economic inequality, societal um, equity um, as well. So we could talk for days about uh, those, those four elements. I would say it's about the small activities that lead to the biggest wins. So, when it comes to agencies moving activities forward or actually making changes, it's focus on the inclusion as much as you are the diversity. Diversity gets people through the door. Inclusion keeps them there. So as much as you have got a diverse workforce and your numbers are great at one particular moment in time, if they have shifted quite dramatically one month, two months in, 
you have you can't ignore that why are they leaving and if they are leaving what reasons have they shared that we need to act upon better or that we haven't acted upon and if we haven't acted upon why so work on how you are creating a safe environment for people of color, for different, uh, for Asian Americans, for indigenous, uh, for indigenous, but work on creating a, a safer environment for people of color, for people from multi, uh, multicultural backgrounds to feel safe where their voices are heard, but their plights are heard far, far louder. So yeah, I know we're trying to cover so many things today, but there's two two things, two more things that I want to make sure we touch on. Sure. And um, one to, to the point about you know inclusion, um, such a big part of inclusion is, and you've already alluded to it a few times, is the microaggressions, and 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 that those are the little little things that add up every day, and the ones that are harder to 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 address because you know you 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 hear it and you're like, did I hear that right? Do I? You know, is my instinct right on this? Does it, does it something about this? Off? I mean, I've heard, you know, privately, so many people have told me anecdotes and, and they're ones that, you know, they're like, I just think someone doesn't like me. They just, I, I just feel like they don't look at me um, and, and engage with me in the same way that they do my colleagues. Um, but, you know, how do you, you can't, it's really, that's a very difficult thing to prove, right? Um, so how, do you have any suggestions on how organizations deal with some of these microaggressions and, and you know, what is, what is a way to address some of these things that are, are almost intangible, right? I mean, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. completely. Mm -hmm. I would say also is where possible is don't wait for the microaggression to be brought up to you as an issue in the first place. Are you using your ERG resources, your town halls to have continual conversations with your multicultural workforce? What do you talk to them about? Are they bringing up experiences of this nature? You have to keep track of it as much as possible in a safer environment. And so my recommendation is also calling it out when it happens. My experience, again, given the level of position I have, I've been in meetings in the past where my work is being commended but a CMO or CEO will feel very comfortable walking up and running their fingers through my afro as a way of saying, good job. What? No. <laughs> and when you look at other people who've seen what's happened and their uncomfortableness with it, now again comes back the emotional burden. Okay, now I my reaction, I'm going to have to help them get through it as well as me. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so actually, I, I want to let, let's let's talk about that for one second because I, I do think that the, the other you know agencies are kind of in a two pronged battle, right? It's like their own their own culture, and then also the, their their clients, right? And and agencies have had traditionally a, a, they've been in a sticky situation when when clients have been done inappropriate things um you know whether whether that's around race whether that's around gender yeah. or both, um like in, in your situation um how, what advice what do you do in your own career um when dealing with microaggressions or or not so micro actually in, in this case um from clients um and and what advice would you give to agencies um in terms of dealing with that okay i'm going to if you may permit me i'm going to lead with a story from my ex personal experience i was giving hosting and uh, lecturing at a workshop 
uh, in sports. And it was organized on behalf of a very prominent person within the sports athlete, um, athlete industry. And after the lecture finished, I'd done it in partnership. I'd hosted it in partnership with the CEO. And my work colleagues were with me. There was five of us. And this person asked each of my work colleagues where they went to school. When this person got to me, they asked me, oh, what school did you go to if you went to school? I'm the only person who's black within this circle. I then bolded up my chest, non-aggressively. Uh, I'm actually a law graduate and I also studied French. I, I've lived in Paris and I, I have this qualification. And then the look on this person's face when they had realized what they'd done and tried to overcompensate by telling me the documentary that they had watched on civil rights. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, you know, you're trying too hard. You said what you said, you have to live with it. I, my responses now to what you're, how you're trying to comfort me, you're not going to get anything from me. I would say, and this is again, relation to we saying about what I am, what we would be seeking to help is that immediate allyship don't need it to be brushed off, which it was, by the way, by the CEO. Mm -hmm. Don't, we are not looking for it to be brushed off. I'm looking for immediate advocacy of calling it out. And I'm looking for immediate action on what you're going to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. Well, and, so, and yeah, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here because you don't, you don't have to become this, but, but do you have any ideas on in that moment, what that could have looked like? I would have appreciated my CEO saying, what do you mean by that to, to that, mm -hmm. to that client's face mm -hmm. right there. And then right. what I got instead was awkwardness mm -hmm. of eyes darting back and forth and then looking down at the ground. I would appreciated if, even if not that immediate call out right after to say, I saw what happened. I acknowledge what happened. We do not stand for that. This is the action I'm going to take an email to this person. I'm going to call it out to this organization. I'm going to ask for a formal apology, etc. But I got nothing. And the onus again was on me to internally process what had happened, to internally process that I didn't have an ally as much as I thought I had in the organization I was working for, the agency was. And to talk about it with uh, a fellow black uh, work colleague who actually, who gave me comfort when I was talking about it. So, so no, go ahead. No, no, I think that's, I think that's excellent. I think those are, you know, and, and those are two options, right? I mean, one is in the moment to, to, to do something. Mm -hmm. And the second is at least address it immediately after and address it one-on-one -on -one, um, with you or, you know, wh whoever the person is that, that felt it. I think, I think it, Hearing that other people in the room saw it and felt it, I think is really powerful. Um, and, and, and that leads to, to my next question, uh, which, I, which we'll, we, can, we can close on this, and this is um, mental health. Be, you know, the industry, the PR industry has been talking about mental health more openly I, mm. than it ever has been in the last few years. But there seemed to be, I mean, to be a person of color in the PR industry, 
has its own level of stress on top of all of the other stressors that we know that the industry, you know, that folks in the, in, in the industry face. And part of it is, like you said, I mean, having to internalize these things on a day-to-day -day basis and just swallow things, um, pretend that they weren't a big deal. Um, and, and so I'm curious, you know, what your advice is in, you know, in this moment, what people can do, what leaders can do to, to help with mental health within their, with their employees of color. So I would say how, again, how often are you talking to your employees of people of color not to await the, the grievance to be reported is how often your dialogue and your conversations are with them on this specific topic. So it doesn't become, again, sanitized. We just want to check in with you, see how things are doing it. What's your experience been like this month, this quarter, whichever period that you decide? Please be real with me. Be honest. Because the only way you're going to learn is, again, making people trust that something is going to be done from, from their, their sharing of that grievance. I, I think that's really important. I think that's a great takeaway is, is, is don't, wait for the, don't wait for the grievance to come to you. No. Like be proactive within your own organizations. I think that's a great takeaway for people. Listening. Yeah, absolutely. And also expand what your definition of proactive is. Proactive is not a checklist. If someone's reported a grievance and you've said, okay, we've ticked this, we've done all of this channels, but you actually haven't approached it again as with the hum humanity that it needs. How are you, how are you doing? Are you okay? This is the steps we got done, but I want you to, to actually share how this made you feel, what grievances do you have from this? We are taking action, but there might be something underlining or bubbling that it's triggered from past experiences. Not treating it like an Oprah session by any means, right, right, right. but also again, making sure that you make you are going out of your way for them to feel seen, visible and valued. We're not looking for you to give us value, but at least show that you do value what we contribute. And that's not just as much as the work, but also as much as the emotional energy that we give when we are working in, um, within agencies. What do you think about, you know, so many agencies um, have DNI officers now. Um, what do you think about that role and how do you think agencies should utilize that? And for agencies that don't have that role, what should, should they have a committee or should they add, like, what are some of the things that they can do? Well, to, for me, I think that you need some, let me rephrase this, sorry, I'm going verbal diarrhea here. <laughs> if, if you need someone to be completely dedicated to DNI, I'm not opposed to that at all. But what is the strategy behind their presence of being within your agency? Is it to service the employees? from an internal perspective, through employee engagement, through workshops, through training, through providing resources, through providing um, a third party experts coming in and sharing their thoughts or sharing that counsel, that's actually ingrained within their career growth as well. Personally speaking, I believe that DNI should be part of your progression um, of your review process and what you have done to help, not in its own bucket, but also again in expectations on how you've helped on that. And that could be even part of internal comms, for instance, or how you're advocating for the agency. But also within that is if it's just purely 
for an external facing exercise to make sure the numbers in your DNI reports are great, that you're making sure that you've got speaking engagements from your CMO, from your CEO. And a lot of that again is external facing with lack of substance beneath. Then you are doing a very, uh, doing a disservice to the, the title that you've given and empowered that person. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's, it, it all comes back to sort of the, the, the quote that you, 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 you gave us um, for, for our piece on, on how the PR industry is responding to, to, to the protests. And that's, um, it, it comes back down to action. I mean, really, that's sort of the moment that we're in. Um, well, Sabrina, this was um, such a great conversation. I feel like, I feel like we could have kept talking. Um, and, you know, this is, I think you and I have talked about this, you know, in, in, you even addressed it um, at the beginning of this conversation this can't this there has to be a long-term plan and because you know because of that you know I, I i hope that we have you back on this show let's you know let's let's revisit this um in a few months time and see where i'd love to yeah. Love to. yeah i'd like to also just extend to what you were saying as well regarding the dni officer is that it's not the responsibility of one person to make the dni changes that's everybody's responsibility. The DNI officer is just making sure that their steps are being taken and it's moving forward. But the power always remains in, into every member of the workforce, every level of the employee. That's their responsibility. It's not something that can be delegated to one person because that says to me that you're not learning and you're not appreciating the diversity of the work colleagues that you are working with and their backgrounds. That's an excellent point, right? I mean, the, the, the DNI officer should be making sure that the steps and the actions are being taken, but the responsibility um, for creating the, 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 the inclusive environment, um, for having kind of a, a, a diverse workforce, that should fall on everybody, no matter Everyone. Yep, yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, well, again, thank you, Sabrina. And again, let's, let's, let's keep this conversation going. I think this is something that needs to not just be, you know, that, that comes up in, in moments of crisis. This needs to be an ongoing conversation. And I think for the industry to be held, be held accountable. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll be back again in and in, in probably sooner. We're doing a lot more of these interviews right now than usual. So um, you'll probably be um, seeing another episode also on this topic um, with, with the Provoke Media podcast. But until then, thank you again to our guest, Sabrina. And thank you again to Marketeers, our production team. Um, and we'll be back again soon. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.